The Old Testament reading is Isaiah 7, 1 through 17, which is also the sermon text. And I think it might be helpful um, if you would open your Bibles and follow along with this. I think it might make a little more sense. And since I see Dave out there and my husband, who are Hebrew scholars, I'm going to try to say some of the names in Hebrew. We'll see how that goes. Okay, as you know, there was a time when the monarchy of Israel was united under kings Saul, David, and Solomon, and then it split into two. The northern kingdom, which continued to be called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was Judah through which, of course, that was the line through which the Messiah came. This particular Old Testament scripture is a story that happened after the split. There are five main characters here. And here's where it's a little bit confusing because there are so many names. There are three kings. The first one is Ahaz. He is the son of Yotham, son of Uzziah. He is the king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom, which is also in this passage called the House of David, whose capital is Jerusalem. The second king is Pekah, the son of Ramalia. He's the king of Israel, which is the northern kingdom, which is also called Ephraim, whose capital is Samaria. The third king is Rezin, the king of Syria, whose capital is Damascus. Now these two, the, the king of Israel, Pekah, and the king of Syria, Rezin, are in cahoots against Ahaz. There's also Isaiah, who's the prophet to the southern kingdom, and he's trying to help Ahaz, and he gives a special sign. And then, of course, there is the Lord, who is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. So let's look at the text now. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Yotham, son of Uzziah, the king of Israel, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David, that's southern kingdom, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sha'ar Yashuv, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, that's Pekah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it 
and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tava'al as king in the midst of it. Yet, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, Israel, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia, that's Pekah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim, the northern kingdom, departed from Judah, the southern kingdom. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Is on? Y'all hear me? Great. Thank you for that, Barbara. I am not, well, I mean, I studied Hebrew, but I am, I don't consider myself a Hebrew scholar, and so I am going to live in willful ignorance and butcher these names. So thank you for doing those correctly right up front and explaining a lot of that. Probably shaved a couple minutes off of my sermon here. Um, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Sam. I'm an assistant pastor here. Um, Mike is our interim senior pastor, and he's on the, I think he's on the road today, coming back from um, Thanksgiving with, his, with their family. Um, so I, I'm going to be preaching today on the text that Barbara just read, um, which is fitting, because for Advent this year, we are going to be um, structuring each week based off of the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. A couple months ago, Mike got um, a few of the worship leaders together, and um, we came up with this plan to um, structure it based off of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, um, because of uh, how awesome the, the hymn is and how, how greatly it prepares our hearts for um, the arrival of Jesus. So each week, we're going to focus on a stanza of the hymn and, and talk about what it says about Jesus. And so also, um, hopefully all of you guys got this, but um, to help you with your family and personal devotions, um, we put together a uh, devotional for this Advent um, that goes through each week. Uh, it has readings 
Um, it has devotionals that are written by people in the church. Um, and thank you to everyone who contributed to that. Um, and it's also got some uh, direction for families and some other readings uh, that you can do together as well. Um, so I hope, hope you put that to use. That'll be following along with us um, in our O Come, O Come Emmanuel series. Uh, I also want to encourage uh, each family um, to learn the hymn together. Learn the, learn the stanza each week. Um, so Gail is up there with the kids right now uh, learning the first stanza, and I ask that you guys would um, try to do that together. Oh, she's right there. You already did it. You're... Oh, that's great. Awesome. Awesome. Sorry, Gail. <laughs> um, so uh, I would ask that, that you guys do that um, in your personal and family devotionals as well. So today we're focused on the first stanza, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I've, I've always loved this hymn. Um, it's not even really technically, I mean, people kind of quibble about these things, right? But it's not even really technically a Christmas hymn. It is a Advent hymn proper, Advent proper. It's, it's about looking forward, longing for, asking for, praying for, waiting for the arrival of Jesus, the Advent of Jesus, of Emmanuel. There are some songs where, you know, the, the music, like the actual um, music doesn't match the words of the song, like the, the vibe of the music and the, and the words don't always match. This is not one of them. Like the, the music of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel matches the topic, the subject perfectly. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it's, it's a haunting hymn. It's a, it's a hymn that communicates longing. It isn't, come on, Emmanuel. It's, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. You can hear it in the, oh, come, Emmanuel. That's why I love, um, personally, I think I made a, um, a snarky comment about this somewhere in that uh, devotional, but I love Enya's version of this song so much because she, she hits that note perfectly. Um, you know, it's, it's, her version is haunting and it sounds like she recorded it in her Irish ca- castle with her cats watching and like it's, it's really echoey and there's one point partway through the song where she just hits the O oh, and it pierces through your soul. And even, you know, driving here early in the morning today, like I was listening to that and it gave me goosebumps. It's a haunting song. It communicates longing. C.S. Lewis wrote of a longing that's best described by the German word Sehnsucht. Uh, I tried to ask some of my, um, some of the youth who supposedly take German um, how to pronounce that word and I think they led me astray on purpose. Um, but I Googled it and Google says they were wrong. So Sehnsucht. Zinzucht, especially in the writing of C.S. Lewis, is a soul-level, inconsolable longing that you can't quite explain. You can't quite pinpoint the origin of. It's like a nostalgia for experiences you haven't had and places you haven't been to. It's a right feeling in a broken world where we're faced with sin and with suffering to have a Zinzucht longing for another Another world, one that isn't broken. This Zainzuk longing shows up in almost all of C.S. Lewis's writing, and it's one of, if not the most dominant themes in his thinking. It's a large part of his first believing in Jesus. It shows up in Narnia and the Space Trilogy. It shapes his view of pain and of joy, and it's a part of his apologetic to giving a reason for the hope that's in him. 
That's what's behind one of his most famous quotes. If I find in myself a desire, a zainzukt, a longing, which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. But he also offers us a warning about not acknowledging our zainzukt for what it is. The books, this is a quote from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located. He talks about beauty as something that um, gives us this, this longing, this zainzukt that, that is pointing to another world. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty of that zainzukt was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they will turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. In other words, we can try to smother out our zainzukt longing by just looking to whatever is in front of us to satisfy that deep longing that comes from living in a broken world full of sin and suffering. But if we do that, we're actually smothering the longing for the truth that there is another world. We're smothering it. Our passage on O Come, O Come, Emmanuel today is from the first mention of Emmanuel in the Old Testament in Isaiah 7. Um, if you didn't already turn there, um, then please turn there now. We're going to see through the prophecy of Isaiah Facing a broken world of sin and suffering where God's people were threatened. We're going to see what King Ahaz is looking to and what God reveals his true longing is for. So we come into this text with the context of rumors of war. Um, I'll even confuse myself if I get into all of these names, honestly. So I'm just going to go with the, the, with, with the kingdoms that are involved, okay? So we're, like Barbara said, we're in the divided kingdom. Assyria is the major world power at this point, and they are coming through. They're on the prowl. And so, divided kingdom, so there's northern Israel, and there's, southern, there's the southern kingdom called Judah. And the northern kingdom sees, oh man, Assyria is coming. So they team up with, and this is going to get confusing, I'm sorry, can't help it. Well, they team up with Syria, okay, which is different from Assyria, and I started to look up why they are named so similarly, but they're completely different people, and then I got really bored, and then I didn't do it anymore, so, but just take that, take my word on it, different places, right? Assyria is the big bad guy, Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel partner together to try to fight Assyria, and so the northern kingdom of Israel teamed up with Syria, um, comes to, like they, they, they try to get um, Ahaz and the southern kingdom on their team. That's where we are right now. So in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the son of, or the king of Judah, reason the king of Syria, Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to J Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So they, they've plotted together since the southern kingdom is not partnering with them, or at least they hear that they're not partnering with them. They are planning an attack. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of its people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Have you ever felt like that? 
like a wind could just blow you over. You are so afraid. They were shaking in their boots. Verse 3, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you, and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. That's, that's actually pretty important. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your hearts be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and, the, and Syria and the son of Ramaliah. Because of Syria, with Ephraim and the sons of Ramaliah, is devised evil against you, saying, Let's go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set the son of Tabeel up as king in the midst of it. So they're going to set kind of like a, a puppet king, a puppet ruler up, says the Lord God. So there's a lot of evidence already in this text, but there's more to come, that Ahaz has kind of already made up his mind. He already knows what he's going to do. He was afraid, with the, along with the rest of his country. And in verse 3, we see God telling Isaiah to go meet up with King Ahaz. Where is Ahaz? He's by this, I know it sounds kind of weird, but he's by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. That's important because he's already pre preparing his water supply. He's checking his water supply out in preparation of a siege. So he knows that they're attacking. He knows what he's going to do, and he's preparing for a siege. He's between a rock, and I'm not going to keep him over here. I'm going to drop him eventually, but he's between a rock and a hard place. He was facing, looking right at the brokenness of the world, the, the sin of these kingdoms that are coming upon him and the suffering that they might have to face. And he says, I've made up my mind. He was already preparing to side with the big monster, Assyria. And so in sending Isaiah, God said to Ahaz, I see you. I see your situation. I know what's going on. I know what they're doing. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Don't let your heart be faint. I know you're scared. And that fear from only seeing the brokenness, the visible brokenness that you can see with your eyes and trusting in the only options that you can actually see with your eyes, I know you're wanting to go with Assyria. I know you feel like you only have choices and they're both bad, but hold on, hold on. God says, he goes on, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. He can't be any clearer. The Lord cannot be any clearer with Ahaz. He says, they are not gonna get you. They are not going to get you. That's a promise. They will not wipe you out. Verse 8. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim. So, sorry, I should have explained that. Ephraim, when it says Ephraim, that's one of the biggest tribes in the northern kingdom. And so when it says Ephraim, read northern kingdom. So within 65 years, the northern kingdom will be shattered from being a people. And this is a reference to the Assyrian exile. As we know later, they end up beating the northern kingdom and the north goes into exile. But he goes on. The Lord goes on in verse 9. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. So he's talking about a lot of heads, which is kind of weird, right? But this is, this is kind of what the Lord's saying here. The head of them is this guy. This is what's going to happen to them. They're going to be judged. This guy is the head of that country. This is what's going to happen to them. They're going to be judged. Who's the head of Israel? Right? And ultimately, the answer to who's the head of Israel is God. God is supposed to be, ultimately, the king in Israel. And the actual king that's sitting on the throne is supposed to be in a loving obedience to him and his laws. God is saying, your destiny does not rest with these guys. It rests with me. 
So he ends with a warning to Ahaz. He says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. So notice a few things here. So there's no response between where God says, if you're not firm in the faith, you won't be firm at all. And then verse 10, where it says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. So there's silence here. I venture to say that's probably because he already made up his mind. The Lord says, it's even very clear. It doesn't even say Isaiah says, even though the Lord was talking through Isaiah. It says, and the Lord spoke to Isaiah and said, ask me for a sign. Ask me for a sign. And Ahaz said, I don't want to put you to the test. That's bad, right? But did the Lord say, put me to the test? God is saying, look, I know that in the face of this broken world of sin and suffering, you're choosing to go against me, against the way that I have for you, because it's the only option you can see, right? You're looking to Assyria to save you, because it's the best of the options that you see. But let me give you a sign. Let me give you something that you can see. Name it and I'll show it to you to validate the prophecy that Isaiah has given to you. And my promise that you will be all right. You're looking to Assyria to save you. But let me give you a sign. Let me give you something to look at. Something you really need. And because Ahaz had already resolved in his heart to looking to Assyria to be his functional savior, he pretended to be oh so pious, right? Oh so pious. No, God, I can't, I can't put you to the test. And at that hardness of heart, resolved to looking to Assyria for salvation, God gives him a sign and a judgment. So continuing on here. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself We'll give you a sign. You didn't ask for one, right? But the Lord is going to give you a sign. The Lord himself is going to give you a sign anyway, in his way. Behold, you've all heard this before. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. You probably recognize that verse, even if you've never heard this whole context of it. He shall eat, this is verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you will dread will be deserted. And that's a, the promise restated again. You're going to be, these people are not going to get you. Here's the judgment. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. So since the days that these two kingdoms split up, you have not seen destruction that, like that will come upon you. And, and the grammar here at the end is kind of like it, it's, it packs a punch, right? And, then, and you probably see that in the way that um, the ESV or whatever version translates it. It ends with the king of Assyria. That's an exclamation point. The king of Assyria is going to be your judgment. So God's saying... I know that's a lot. God's saying, in the face of brokenness, in the face of the sin that you're up against, in the face of the suffering that you're looking at, you're scared and you're running from rock to hard place looking for a savior, looking to Assyria to save you from this broken world. But that's not what you really need. That's not 
what you really long for. See over and over again in this passage that God addresses King Ahaz by his house. He says that over and over again. What house? It's the house of David. He sits on the throne of David. He's a descendant of David, which God promised. God promised to David that his throne would never end. But the king sitting on David's throne is supposed to have David's heart. So God comes and he says, you're looking to Assyria, but what you're really longing for, what you really need, you really have a zinzukt heart level longing for. What you really have that longing for is me. You need me. But you're smothering that by your hard heart's resolve to look to Assyria. David, guy I just talked about, right? Really messed up. Made a bunch of... Um, he, Terrible, abusive sin. But when God came to him in the rebuke of the prophet Nathan, his response was repentance in dust and ashes. But when God comes to Ahaz and says, stop looking to the way of the world to save you, Ahaz just brushes him off. You're too busy looking to Assyria to see your heart level, needy, zainzukt, longing for me. What we look for when we do that in place of what we actually long for, what we look to will devour us. Ahaz looks to the might of the king of Assyria and eventually his kingdom gets the might of the king of Assyria in the way that they were not hoping for. Judah ended up losing their sovereignty. They ended up becoming a vassal state. And then eventually when the Assyrians got taken over by the Babylonians, they got smushed by the Babylonians and exiled by them. There's a, there's a phrase, I don't know if you've heard it, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. What God is essentially saying here is play the games of the world. Try to play geopolitical warfare when you're not listening to me, not heeding me, not loving me, not acknowledging your longing to me, for me and pursuing me. When you're playing those worldly games, you get worldly prizes. You'll be devoured by that which you look to to save you from bearing the brunt of sin and suffering in this broken world. There are two kind of applications of this Emmanuel prophecy. Some prophecies in the Old Testament have a double fulfillment. Okay, so there's a, when, when the prophet gives the prophecy, then there's a sort of kind of, how do you say, like there's an original fulfillment. There's a near fulfillment to it. There's something that would make sense to the original ears of the people that heard it, the original audience. And then there's a far application which is where God was ultimately going to with it. So the near application here is God saying to Ahaz, look, because you're not listening to me, because you're teaming up with Assyria, because you're not following me, you're going to be smushed. But Emmanuel, I'm going to save the line. I'm going to save the Davidic line. I'm going to keep my promise to David. Um, so... There's a, there's a couple people that this could be referring to. Uh, we're not exactly sure. Scholars disagree on this of who the original, like who, who the um, partial fulfillment to the original audience might have been. It might have been, uh, I didn't really want to try to pronounce this, but I'm going to. It might have been, um, in, in chapter 8, we see Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Um, I didn't even uh, practice that. You should be proud of me. Or, so it could have been that guy, it could have been King Hezekiah, who is a son of Ahaz, who is a good king. 
And in some good way, these people furthered the house of David and they followed the Lord. They were maybe a partial fulfillment to this prophecy. But we see two chapters later after this, there's another prophecy that Isaiah says that is attached to this child, Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You've heard this before. There's no way you can apply that to Hezekiah or Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Right? They, they, you can't call them Mighty God. You can't call them Everlasting Father. So this points to a farther fulfillment. When a baby would be born as a king who would not look to any functional saviors, but who would be our savior. One who in the face of the brokenness and the sin and the suffering of the world, instead of buckling from and diverting from the Lord's path, he would instead follow the Lord's path all the way to Golgotha, bearing the full brunt of the brokenness and the sin and the suffering of the world so that we could be with God. This points to the reason for the whole story. So one thing I like about covenant theology is it gives us a lens to view the whole scripture with, the whole scripture through the eyes of covenant. And one way you can put that is through Emmanuel. Because in the beginning, with Adam and Eve, what is it? God with us. God in the garden with Adam and Eve. And they fell. And so God appeared in burning bushes, God with us. He gave us the law so that we could know him, so that we could commune with him, God with us. When we couldn't follow the law, he gave us prophets like Isaiah that prophesied about someone who would come and be God with us. And then Jesus came and he was God with us. He was actual, fully God with us to bring us to God. And when Jesus ascended into heaven and he promised us that he would always be with us. He gave us the spirit so that it was, again, God with us. And then in the book of Revelation, we see in Revelation 21 and 22, God with us once again, forever. It's the whole story. That's what our need is. That's what your longing is for. That's what your Zayn Zucht is all about. In our broken world where we're faced with sin and with suffering, we look for pragmatic solutions, functional saviors and remedies to save us, but they only end up devouring us because we ultimately have a zainzucht longing for what we really need, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, which provokes our joy to sing, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come to you, O Israel. So I want to ask you this morning, what are you looking to? This is a hard time of year for a lot of people. Do it a lot of different things. Depression's up. Family struggles are up. There's a lot going on in the world. A lot of people are struggling. What are you looking to in the face of a broken world full of sin and suffering? Full of your sin and suffering. What are you looking to? So we've got to have something. We either make functional saviors for ourselves. We, we try to, you know, act like some of these good things that God gives us, just like C.S. Lewis said from that quote in the beginning, good stuff, but we make them into God stuff. We make them into idols. Might be doing that. Another way of doing this is um, by withdrawing. 
You could be withdrawing in a, in a number of ways. Maybe you just become cynical. In the face of brokenness, sin and suffering, you become cynical. Ah, well, I, you know, I don't care about any of this anymore. You could be medicating yourself because of the brokenness that you're faced with. We can just dive right into addictions, sins, struggles that are all to save us from feeling the brunt of the brokenness of the world. G.K. Chesterton said, every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is knocking for God. And in a certain way, I think that's really true. When we sin, we're looking We're looking to save ourselves from this broken world in some way, but we're really only adding to it. And it will really only devour us like Ahaz looking to the king of Assyria who ends up destroying Judah. We look for these pragmatic ways that they make a lot of sense. In some ways, it makes a lot of sense. These different worldly ways to run to. These different things that we see as functional saviors. We have many kings of Assyria. But they will only devour us. What are you looking to right now? In the face of the brokenness that you see. In the face of the brokenness in your own soul. What are you looking to? But I also want to ask. What are you longing for? I think there's power in acknowledging that we long. We have this Zayn Zucht for Emmanuel. We need God with us at the, at the heart, at the center of our longing that leads us in all these different ways. We really need Emmanuel. We need God with us. We need Jesus, our connection with the Father. God is saying to you in this moment through this passage, you need me. You, need, you long for me. Stop looking to functional saviors. Stop looking to withdrawal. Stop looking to these different ways you try to medicate your own brokenness. Look to Emmanuel. Look to Emmanuel. Who you long for. C.S. Lewis also, he didn't just talk about longing as something that was just, I don't know, a negative thing that is never fulfilled. He talked about how our, in, in our own joy... Like in the most joyous moments of our lives, there's a sense of this Zane Zook longing. There's a sense of this unfulfillment. He talked about that because that's connecting us with something deeper, something greater. It's pointing to something greater. And so in our joy, in our joy, we can see our longing, our longing for Emmanuel. And that's the kind of joy that actually recognizing that and pursuing Emmanuel, that's, that's something that will lead you deeper in, deeper and farther in to the joy of the Lord. And I pray, whatever, if, if you use this thing or not, if you listen to the people up here who talk or not this Advent, I pray that you would recognize your zenzukt, your longing for Emmanuel, and that you would make room in your heart for him this Advent. That will lead you to joy. That will lead you to singing. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has come to you, O Israel. Let's pray. God, we do have a longing for you. And you satisfy that longing. You came. You sent your son, God with us, to pay for our sins 
to make us right with you. And yet, God, we are tempted so often, like Ahaz, to look for whatever makes sense to our physical eyes, whatever way of dealing with the brokenness of the world, the sin and the suffering that makes sense to us in the moment. We're so tempted to veer off the path, God, but we pray that we would stop looking to those things and we would start recognizing our longing for Emmanuel within those things and that we would pursue you, that we would make room for you this Advent, that we would prepare our hearts for your arrival. Amen.